Thank you, Ben. All right, if you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Today was going to be a, a day of celebration. We were going to have baptisms today. We had at least three people that were lined up for baptism today. Uh, we were going to have a, a, a meeting after worship for those interested in going to Israel. And, and I've emailed everybody in that group about that. Of course, that trip is in limbo. We're going to be exploring the options for that coming up. But, uh, and we're still going to have a celebration Sunday with baptism. It's going to be the first Sunday back. Whatever Sunday that is, we're going to have baptisms. We're going to celebrate. We're going to sing like we've never sung before. Right, Matt? I mean, we're going to have a great time on that first Sunday back. But today, we're going to conclude this series we've been on this year, Who's Your One? And again, I'm concluding a series, but we are not concluding this campaign. Because guess what? This campaign is simply the Great Commission. This is what we're supposed to be doing all the time as followers of Jesus Christ. But over the past few months, we've talked about the basics of the gospel. We've talked about your personal faith story and how to share that with other people. We've learned how we can have gospel conversations where we can help to connect the story of God with our story, with the story of the people that we're trying to reach and talk with. We've talked about the reality of hell, the great need that our family and friends have for us to do all we can do to bring them to Jesus. And as we wrap up this series, let me say that no pandemic... No single event or life situation cancels the Great Commission. Now, more than ever, people need and want to hear good news. And we've got the greatest news that anybody has ever heard. We need to share it. There is a sickness that is greater than coronavirus. And this sickness has a 100% infection rate and a 100% fatality rate. It's called sin. And everyone has it. And while it always will end in physical death, worse, unless it's cured, it will also end in spiritual death, in eternal separation from God in hell. But the good news is that there is a treatment. There is a cure. And His name is Jesus. And why in the world would any of us want to sit on such amazing news? If anybody discovered they had a cure-all fix for coronavirus, it would be the number one headline right now. We know the cure for sin. And we need to do all we can to share that good news with others. This is the mission that Jesus came for. The mission He lived. The mission for which He died and rose again. And Jesus has given each and every one of us as His followers this same mission. When you were saved... When you gave your life to Jesus and you became a Christian, you were not saved just for yourself. You were saved so that you can become a partner with Jesus in His mission to save the world. We are saved to be sent. Redemption is a life-saving rescue that involves a profound rewiring of our thoughts and a repurposing of our hearts. We are saved to go out into the world for the glory of Jesus Christ, to make Him known as our Lord and our Savior. But how do we do this? How do we join Him on this mission? What plan did Jesus leave us so we could make Him known to the world? Well, it all began with a small group of confused, unqualified, unknown men 
who happened to walk with Jesus every day. So read with me in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. The last half of verse 6 actually says that Jesus was going around teaching from village to village, and it says, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. The twelve. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached about how Jesus called these twelve to him. And, you know, he called Matthew, was a tax collector, called him from his tax collection booth. And, and you know, I talked about the Sea of Galilee last week. Well, on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus came up to these fishermen, uh, two, you know, uh, two sets of brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and he called them to step out of their boat, to leave their nets behind, to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. And they answered that call to follow Jesus and be fishers of men. Jesus called a zealot. Jesus called a man who would later betray him. Jesus called all of these people to serve him as his disciples. He could have chosen the experienced, the well-educated. He could have commissioned the crowds who were coming to him to see all the miracles and to hear the teaching, thousands and thousands of people. Instead, he selected 12 random guys, stayed with them his whole ministry, and sent them out to speak on his behalf. Now, this was not typical for a first century Jewish rabbi. See, in in the first century, and and for for much of Jewish history, uh, all Jewish boys would grow up going to Torah school. And they would start that at the age of five. And they would go to Torah school for five years. And by the time they were ten, they all knew the Torah. They knew it by heart. They could recite it from memory. How many Bible verses do you know and can recite from memory? Do you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from memory? These ten-year-old boys knew that. And the best of them would continue. And they would go on to study the rest of the Old Testament but all the others, the, the average, you know, maybe the, 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 those who were kind of struggling a little bit, they would, they would go on to learn the family trade, like Peter and Andrew as fishermen. Like Matthew would go on to become a tax collector. They, they wouldn't continue in those studies. Only the best and the brightest of these young men would actually go on to make a religious career for themselves. And if you were one of those, right, you're maybe around 17 years old, you would search out a rabbi that you admire. Somebody whose teaching you really agree with. And you think, yeah, yeah, he's got it. He's right. And you would find this rabbi. You would go and you would sit at his feet, which was a sign of saying, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. It's sort of like your application process. And the rabbi would question you. He would test you and examine you to see if you were worthy to be one of his students. And a rabbi would only choose the smartest only the most talented 17-year-old young men to be his disciples. He had to be picky because when you were choosing a disciple, you were choosing the ones who would believe as you believe, the ones who would teach as you taught, the ones who would actually live like you. And for several years, these young disciples would follow their rabbis and would imitate them in every way because the goal of a disciple was to be like his rabbi. But you know, that's not how Jesus did things, was it? Jesus didn't go after the most learned and studious young men. He went after the rabble. He went after the least of these. He went after 
average, if not questionable guys to be his students. And they didn't search him out. No, Jesus handpicked them. And Jesus picked them not for who they were, but for who he would make them to be. He chose them not because they were qualified, but because he knew that he would qualify them. He saved them so that he could then send them in his power, not theirs, under his authority, not theirs, to fulfill his mission, not theirs. We are not saved just to be saved. Repeat after me. We are saved to be sent. Say that with me. We are saved to be sent. Let's continue in Mark chapter 6. Jesus sends them out two by two. Let's look at verse 8. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They then went out and preached that people would repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. So the first lesson we can learn from this as we seek to be sent out, to reach the ones around us, that need to hear the gospel. The first thing we see is that we are sent by Jesus with a message of good news. A message of good news. Verse 12 says that they the, verse 12 says that the 12 went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They were men with a message that was summarized in one word, repent. Now in Mark's gospel, this word right here repent only appears one other time. And that's in Mark 1.15. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he starts to preach, he preaches a simple sermon. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. See, only two places this word is used in Mark. So what does it mean to repent? It simply means to turn away from sin, to turn away from false gods, from lesser treasures, and to turn our hearts affection and our mind's attention to the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth. Repentance. It's the fitting response of a, simple, of a sinful people to the good news of a holy and just God. Why should we repent though? Why should we turn from sin and from self? Why should we turn from the things of this world toward a holy and gracious God? Because Jesus said the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. See, God's wrath against sin is coming. Judgment awaits everyone. And if we want to be saved from the coming wrath, Jesus said we need to repent. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, Unless you repent, you too all will perish. In fact, Jesus says this twice. He says it again in verse, 15, in verse 5. It's a condition for salvation that we repent from our sins. But it's so more than just a one-time decision. Repentance is a way of life for the follower of Jesus. Why would we continue to walk in sin when we've experienced the grace of God? Why would we walk the crooked path when we've discovered the straight and narrow path 
to life abundant and eternal. Why would anyone want to stay sick when they know the cure? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have what? A new life. The old has gone. The new has come. We are transformed by Jesus. And this is the message summarized in that word repent. Is this whole message. There is a name that loves the unworthy. There is a name that redeems the hopeless. There is a name who heals the sick. There is a name that conquers every evil. And that name is Jesus. And He puts our sinful nature to death and gives us new, abundant, everlasting life. That's the good news that we're sent to proclaim. Secondly, we learn from this story in Mark chapter 6 that we are sent with nothing and yet with everything. We're sent with nothing and yet with everything. Before the disciples went out to proclaim this good news, Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff. He said no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Wear their sandals, but only take one tunic. Why make them live and serve like homeless people? I mean, they didn't have to. They obviously had the stuff to take with them. They had bread, they had bags, they had money, they had jackets. Jesus just gave them the authority over every unclean spirit. Jesus just gave them the ability to heal sick people. So why would He intentionally make their journey harder and hungrier and more precarious? Why would He do this? Simple. It's the same reason that God had Gideon take his army of 10,000 men and reduce it to 300. It's the same reason why God chose a shepherd boy with a sling and a few rocks to take out the Philistine's secret weapon, Goliath. It's to keep his servants humble. It's to force us to depend on him, his wisdom, his strength, his plan, not our own. See, those entrusted with the greatest news in the world... Those empowered to be lights in the darkness where they live can be tempted to be proud, to be self-reliant. If you've ever studied church history, you see that's exactly what we tend to do. We make it about us. We think we've got it figured out. We elevate our plans and our programs and our buildings and, and all of this stuff above the mission of the gospel. And even after Jesus just taught this lesson to His disciples, they still didn't get it. In just a couple more chapters, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's going to get to sit at the right hand of Jesus? And so Jesus rebukes them in Mark chapter 10. He says, you know that, the, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it, meaning they lord their authority over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you 
must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It is a profound but pervasive irony that fruitfulness often causes us to forget it's not about us. It's all about Him. It's all about His good news and His mission to make disciples of all peoples. It's so easy when things are going well as churches and as communities, as Christians, that it's God's sovereign love and power that enables us, that holds all this stuff together. It's God who empowers us to be successful in ministry. It's not us. Which is why Jesus had His followers intentionally forego the safety and the comfort they were used to on this mission. Now, if I were preaching this message a few months ago, I might make this point. Sometimes we need to make ourselves trust God for what we need tomorrow instead of structuring our lives to only need Him every once in a while, like when an unexpected crisis comes. Well, we're in the midst of an unexpected crisis, aren't we? Suddenly, we are desperate for toilet paper and Lysol. Those are the main things we're worried about right now for many of us. You know, we thought we had it all. We thought we were untouchable. We thought, you know, this kind of stuff happens in other countries. It doesn't happen in the United States. Life was bopping along so well. And in the good times, it's easy to forget that we are not in control. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking, we've got this. Maybe God will use this crisis to remind us That if we have a relationship with Him, He's going to make sure we have everything we need for the mission. Maybe now that we're on this journey without bags and bread, and I think Walmart's out of bread today, so without bags, without bread, with only one jacket, now that we're on this mission without sanctuaries, without Sunday school classes meeting together, maybe we'll discover again that our Father loves us more than we know. And he has more at his disposable. He has more at his disposal than we could ever fit in a bag, a money belt, a house, or a four hundred one k. In Matthew six thirty three and thirty four, our New Testament reading, Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and you know what? All the things that we absolutely have to have, he says, they will be ours as well. Do not worry for tomorrow. For tomorrow, worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't know what the future holds for our economy. I don't know what it holds for us as individuals and families or for us as a church. But I choose to turn my worry into worship. I choose to turn my fear into faith. I choose to turn my eyes upon Jesus. To seek first His kingdom and to trust that our Master who has called us to this mission will give us everything we need to see it through to completion. I believe that God will never lead us where His hand will not provide for us. Even when the going gets tough. You know, it's only human nature in times of crisis to drop the non-essentials, right? To kind of to hunker down, to circle the wagons. It's only human nature to hoard all the toilet paper and the bread and the milk. Well, maybe not that part. But we can see from this passage that God is sending us into a lost and dying world. He sends us running headlong into the fray, 
chasing into the darkness, reaching out to the unlovely and the least of these. He is sending us into hard places to work with difficult people, to meet insurmountable odds. Therefore, this is the third point, we are being sent to stay and invest, not to bail. Stay and invest. Jesus went on to say to these messengers, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. These disciples, as well as his disciples today, we're going to meet two kinds of people when we're on the mission. When we're sent out to proclaim this good news with nothing and yet with everything, we're going to meet people who are going to be receptive. They're going to listen to what we have to say. They're going to respond. And then we're going to meet those who will not. Some are going to reject us. They're going to cut us off. They're going to close the door. They're going to hang up the phone. But if they will listen, Jesus says, do not leave too quickly. Stop. Stay a while. Invest where the Word of God is welcomed. Don't feel the need to move on to another house and then another house and then another house. If they'll have you and this gospel, Jesus says, be willing to stay and invest yourself. Now, this was probably a shorter trip for the twelve, but the principle applies to us today. In this fast-moving, fast-paced, overly scheduled society, we need to make room in our days, in our weeks, in our months. We need to make room in our priorities to sit down with those who would hear the Word of God. Don't be in such a hurry that you can't patiently invest where God is moving in the ears the minds and the hearts of those around you. Now, in this display uh, right here, you may only ever put one blue ping pong ball in here. By the way, I'm so thrilled to see how many uh, blue and green balls are in here. You may only put one of these in. You may put in a dozen green ones. You may have a lot of gospel conversations with your one. You may put a lot of white balls in here because you just keep inviting this person to come. You may only ever get to one of these. That's okay. Because Jesus calls us when people are receptive, when they're questioning, when they're seeking. When God is opening that door, we need to walk through. Don't feel the pressure to rush God's work in someone's life if they are actually making progress. Watch for the work God is doing in their life. Follow His lead. Now, that doesn't mean you're to drag your feet But it also doesn't mean you're to needlessly push this other person because you've got some sort of expectation. When God opens the door for the Word, walk through it. Take off your coat. Have a seat. Stay a while. But what about the second type of person? The one who is resistant. The one who does close the door on you or hang up the phone on you or unfriend you on Facebook. But that brings me to the fourth point. We are sent to share, not to save. Some will not listen, and we should expect that. In a world that's enslaved to sin, in a world that's blinded to the beauty of God, we shouldn't be shocked when somebody says thanks but no thanks, or maybe even worse. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily, you know, picked the wrong person or a bad time or you said something wrong. The gospel is the most 
offensive news you can bring, even though it's also the sweetest, most true, most hope-filled news anyone could ever hear. Because in the gospel, we're essentially telling people, you're wicked to your core. You're broken in every way. You're destined for unending wrath at the hands of an all-powerful God. And your only hope is in one message and one man. There's no other way. And in today's culture, that's offensive. So we shouldn't be surprised the world so often scoffs and screams at Christianity. In fact, Jesus told us in John 15, 18 to expect this. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, though, to stay relentlessly until their audience surrendered. He didn't tell them that. He said, no, some are going to listen, some won't. Jesus reminds us, I'm not sending you to save, just to share the good news. Because Jesus alone is the one who can save. Our commission is not to create listeners, but to discover them. And to make disciples of them. And this takes a lot of discernment and prayer, I understand. We have to be careful not to overstay our welcome, but we also can't give up too quickly because we're uncomfortable, right? Remember the story of the four friends. And they couldn't get their friend through the door. So what did they do? They climbed up on the roof. They dug a hole. They made a way to get their friends to Jesus. We're all too quick sometimes, I think, to see an obstacle. And that obstacle may even be put there by the person we're trying to reach. And we say, okay, all right, I'm just going to walk away. Sometimes we do give up too quickly. This is where we have to allow the Spirit to help us determine, is this just Satan's obstacle for us to overcome? Have they really closed the door? Do I really need to back away right now? Or not? Because there are times when we do have to respect someone's wishes. Shake the dust off our feet. Keep praying for them. Keep loving them. Keep living the gospel out for them. We don't ever close that door for them. But we move on to someone else that we can begin to work with and share Jesus with. We are contending for people's souls. So yes, sometimes it's a fight. But you're not going to drag someone kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And that brings us to the final thing we can learn from this story. We are sent to do nothing less than change the world. How long were these disciples gone on this mission? We don't really know, but it doesn't seem like it was all that long. Maybe a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. And there were only two of them. Six sets of two people. Just six teams going out. That's probably smaller than your small group. You know, a lot of our Sunday school classes are a lot bigger than that. So how much could this group really have gotten done? Well, verse 14 says it was enough to get the attention of King Herod. It says that King Herod heard of it, meaning the ministry of the twelve, for Jesus' name had become known. They went out, six pairs of poor, ordinary, untrained, unlikely spokesmen, And what God was doing through them rose to the attention of the highest authority in the land. Through their small and simple ministry, Jesus became known in that city, in that region. Even though they were breadless and bagless and penniless, because they were faithful, God used them to change the world. And He'll do the same through us. How amazing would it be if through our ministry during this 
time of, of, of social distancing. How amazing would it be if the world came to hear the name of Jesus because of the way we loved our neighbors, because of the way we reached out to people online, because we stayed hope-filled and faithful through all of this. God is going to exalt the name of His Son. And He wants to do it through us. He does it by going before us into the heart of our ones that we're trying to reach. He does it by sending us to speak the good news to them. He does it by going with us and providing us with everything we need along the way. And He will exalt the name of His Son by fulfilling through us the great commission that Jesus gave. Jesus' name will be known. It will be believed in. It will be treasured. The question is, will you and I get to experience the joy of being a part of that mission? Right now, we've been stripped of some of the resources and the methods that we're used to having. We've been sent out without many things as a church. But you know, God has given us other resources. He's given us technology that was unfathomable just a couple of decades ago. We're able to do so much more from our homes. We can literally reach the world from our living rooms. That's never been truer at any time in the history of the church. Will we rise to the occasion? Will we meet this new challenge? Will we do everything we can with Christ's power mightily at work in us to reach our ones? When we come back in a few weeks, hopefully, and maybe, maybe a month, who knows, But when we have that first Sunday back, man, I want to see a line of people at this box right here ready to drop in the names, the initials of people that they've been reaching even while we've been apart. Jesus has called us to be fishers of men. Will we answer the call? Will we go and tell? Right now we're going to hear a song about that. And I pray that you would use this song to meditate and think about what we've said today. Think about Jesus' call to you. And will you answer? Will you follow wherever He leads? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that You choose to use us, often in spite of ourselves. Through our weaknesses, through our mistakes, You still are going to be glorified. God, help us to trust You. Help us to step out in faith. Help us to be obedient make disciples of all peoples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.